please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, two chapters away from the end of this wonderful book. What a gift from the Lord this book is. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, while you're turning there, just an just a encouragement to be at next Sunday's members meeting. If you're part of uh, this body, we have a number of important things to do as usual, and I think it'll be a great time. We're always encouraged by those times together. Uh, I was also reminded, because I hear pages still turning, you know, I'll take the time. Uh, I'm also reminded of that last song that we sung. I, I first heard it about 10 years ago. I was preaching at a, a Christian university chapel and singing some songs before I was to go up and preach. And Now, I grew up in an environment where um, Christianity was all about moralism. There was hardly any gospel to be mentioned. It was about doing better, doing the right thing, being better, being moral. And surprise, surprise, I came out really self-righteous. That kind of message leads to one of two places, deep despair because you're never enough, or you think you are enough and you're self-righteous. In both of those, Jesus Christ is not needed, nowhere to be found. I grew up in that environment, and remember, it was called a Christian environment, again, very absent the gospel. Um, and I remember singing Sunday after Sunday, youth group after youth group, um, Christian school chapter, chapel after Christian school chapel, and always being convicted of sin and always promising God, I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better. My heart was never at rest because of what Jesus Christ had done for me. I never understood from the heart that I was accepted in the beloved. And I remember coming to faith in college because I heard the gospel clearly, heard of the grace of Jesus Christ and His righteousness in my place. And so as I was getting ready to preach that day about 10 years ago, hearing this song and hearing this gym full of students singing that song, now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief a spotless son for us? Will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin, now canceled at the cross? The answer being no. There's no condemnation anymore. So I remember thinking what a privilege it was for those students to be singing those lyrics and to be reminded of that truth. And I think about that every time I sing that song. I think what a privilege for us to sing that song and to be reminded of the fact that we will be in heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. His grace is greater than our sin. So, that was all free, okay? Uh, sermon 1A, here comes Sermon 1B. First uh, Samuel chapter 30, I've entitled this message, God Uses the Wounded. God Uses the Wounded. Please listen as I read through First Samuel chapter 30. <clears throat> now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. 
And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each, may, that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. I've entitled this message, as I mentioned before, God Uses the Wounded. He was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that famous Christian, German Christian from the 20th century who was such a blessing to the church then and even now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Our Lord taught this, when you come to him, you are really forsaking your own life to follow him. There is nothing else that you will trust. You won't trust family heritage. You won't trust your own righteousness. You won't trust anything other than Him. You die to everything else and you follow Him. You die to your own way and your own desires and you follow Him. And sometimes you even die to a life of comfort and ease in order to follow after Christ. Christ clearly taught that as He would encourage people to count the cost before they turn to follow Him. Here in this passage, you see God start to bring David back again. David has been distrusting God. We know this because he went to the Philistines for safety when he should have gone back in Judah to Judah and let God care for him. He goes to the Philistines for safety. We've been learning about uh, what happened there. And here, God has brought him back to his town. And he brings him into a, into a state of depression, if you will, into a deep sorrow because his wives and children are taken along with the other men and their wives and children. God sees to it that David is wounded and as we'll see as we go through the passage, we'll learn why God did this. Why does God allow His people to be disciplined? Why does God allow David to go through hardship? We'll see that as the passage unfolds. In this book where we're at, we know that God anointed David and promised that He'd be the king over Israel. We're just, we're just currently at one great problem to that plan. The problem is David's been siding with Israel's enemies. How's God going to make David acceptable again to the Israelites and then rule over them as king when Saul's still alive? 
Well, that story will begin to flesh itself out today. The solution to that will flesh itself out today, and it'll conclude next week as we look at chapter 31. But God, if He's going to keep His promise, needs to get David back to Israel. Now, David's just earlier promised to fight against Israel with the Philistines. We saw last week how God rescued him from that predicament, but he still has to get back to Israel and be credible to the people of Israel. Right now, Saul's their king, Saul's their leader. Many, many people have been chasing David to find him because he's been going against the king. He wasn't, but that's what they think. And so God's got this task to do so that we know that his promises can be kept. God promised David to be king in Israel. He promised Israel would be blessed by David. And so far, David looks like an enemy of Israel, and we don't know how he's going to get back into the good graces of those people in Israel. Don't worry. God's sovereign. And as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, he weaves his plan together, and it comes to fruition. God keeps his promises. But God also doesn't need to just solve the political problem of getting David back to Israel so he can be king. There's also a problem in David's heart, isn't there? He trusted in the Philistines. Now, again, last week we learned that the Philistines released him from battle because they thought, well, if you're fighting with us against the Israelites and they start to get the upper hand, we would just expect that you would go to their side and kill us. So they release him from their military ranks, have him go back to his city in the Philistine territory. But there's still one big problem. Yes, there's a, some sort of solution that David doesn't have to fight against Israel anymore, but there's still a problem with David. He was trusting in the Philistines. That's why that phrase in verse 6 is so important in our passage today. Look down at 30 verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his, own, his sons and daughters. But David, here we go, here's a turning point, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You could say God brought him to a low place, so that the only place David had to go was to look at his God. No more looking to the Philistines. No more looking to his 600 men that were loyal to him. They were actually looking to stone him. The only place David could turn to was the Lord his God. So God is doing a number of things in chapter 30 to get David to where he's going to be. There's a timeless principle here. When God brings fruit from one of his followers' lives, it often comes through trials. That's the way. That's the way of Jesus, fruitfulness from his life that came from his suffering and then to glory. Us as his followers go through suffering and then to glory. We're told that over and over again. In the New Testament, that's what it means to follow Christ. And we see pictures of this in the Old Testament when God's people go through suffering and then they're actually used for His glory. That's how God often brings about fruit. So, our outline for this morning, God's common pattern of bringing forth fruit from His followers. We're going to see it in two parts. God's common pattern of bringing forth fruit from His followers. Here's the first part of His normal pattern, all right? Great distress. So, so if you, like me, will often pray, Lord, I want to be fruitful. I got one life to live. You've made me a certain way with a certain personality, with certain gifts. I want to be used for your glory. I want to bear fruit for you. We often might think that's going to be some sort of easy service, and then God's going to bless that. Well, oftentimes it's very difficult trials and distress, but the Lord uses it and brings forth fruit. He does that here with David. Look at verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. So remember what's happening here. Ziklag is a Philistine city. David was living there for about a year and four months. David and his men leave the women and children behind to go and fight against Israel. We learned about what happened there. The, the men, the elders of the Philistines are kind of looking over the troops and they're saying, what are these Hebrews doing here? What's David doing here? He'll surely turn against us. We're not going to have him fight with us. Send him back home. So Achish, the king of the Philistines, sends David back home to Ziklag, Philistine territory, back home to Ziklag. So David and his men leave the, the ranks of the battle, leave the battlefield, and they go back home. It's a 55-mile journey. 
we're told they arrive back home on the third day. So they're 55 miles into a journey on the third day. They're tired. They come back to Ziklag expecting to see their wife and kids, but instead they see burning. They don't see their wife and kids. They've been taken away. As was common in this area, a band of people, another group of people, another force of people come and loot a certain area, take away and kidnap David's family and the families of his 600 men. So that's where we're at. They killed no one. The Amalekites didn't kill anyone, but they carried them off and went their way. Why wouldn't they kill the women and children? A couple of reasons. Could use them for bargaining. They could use them for slavery. They could sell them to other groups of people. So there's profit to be made by selling of people, and that's what they were possibly doing. But they killed no one. That's a grace. They, didn't, they weren't trying to show grace. They were going to use those people for something, but it's the grace of God that no one was killed. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Verse 3, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. That's despair. I don't know if any of you have been in that situation before where you're in such despair, maybe over the loss of someone, just some situation, and you're just crying and weeping and weeping and weeping, and the next thing you know, it's the next morning. You cried yourself to sleep. You've got no more strength. This is what happened here, just weeping, 600 men, weeping, 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 even to the point of exhaustion. Now, we know they were physically exhausted, would have been, 55 miles, three days, Coming back, seeing the ones that they love gone, houses burned, weeping to the point of exhaustion. You see why they would be feeling the way they do. Verse 5, David's two wives also had been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and David was greatly distressed. So it's not just the 600 men, it's David as well. David was greatly distressed, but he's greatly distressed for another reason. He's got more reason to be greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. Now, throughout 1 Samuel, if there's any group that's been loyal to David, it's these 600 men, right? I mean, they left Saul's leadership. They probably owed Saul and the nation money, so they left. But they've been loyal to David for quite a while multiple years. They've been with him in caves. They've been with him in wilderness. They've been with him over in Moab. They've been with him in Judah. They've been with him in the land of the Philistines. They've been with him. They fought with him. They protected people with David. They protected David from Saul. They've been loyal to him. And here, this is enough. Look what David got us into. All our wives, all our children gone. They might have thought they were dead. House gone. So their one response, let's kill David. Now we know God has to keep his promise. David has to be king. But this is how the story is playing itself out in everyday life. David is greatly distressed because now it's not just that he's experiencing everything else the 600 men are experiencing. My wives are gone. My children are gone. He's also experiencing the fact that they all want to aim their bitterness, bitterness of soul at him. They want to kill him. What would you do? What would you do if you were David? Probably run. Probably flee. Let's just be honest. Probably flee. At this point in 1 Samuel, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you might say David would probably go find some other people group to protect him. He's gone to Moab. He's gone to the Philistines. Let's try the Kenites. Let's go and maybe see if the Amalekites would actually let him come and find refuge there. We almost expect David to go and flee and find somewhere else to go. But that verse, verse 6, is so important at the end. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. There's a turning point from where David's been the last few chapters. This is good. God allows him to go through a moment of distress, a time of great distress, to grab his attention, and David looks to him, strengthens himself in the Lord. Some of you might have 
thought as I read that phrase. You might have thought, I know that phrase. Where was that phrase before? I've heard that phrase before. You're right. First Samuel 23. David is on the run. This is early in David's being on the run from Saul. And it says that Jonathan came to David in the wilderness and strengthened David's hand in God. So in the past, David had his closest friend come and say, you hang in there. You believe in the promises of God. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. David now is all alone. No friend, no, no, no band of 600 people that are loyal to you. And David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Such an important statement. What do you do? What is strengthening your hand in God? What is strengthening your heart in the Lord actually look like? Look at verse 7. You go and you listen to God. So if you've ever been in a time of despair, tried to kind of wiggle out of a problem yourself and it, another problem happens or the problems keep rolling in like waves and you can't get your breath, what do you do? The only place to look is to God. And what do you do when you look to God? You start listening to Him again. And David starts listening to God again. He goes to God. Verse 7, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod, so the decision-making vest that the priest would wear. Bring me the ephod. He wants to hear from God. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Notice the speed of God's answer. And, and you know, you've been going through 1 Samuel uh, for the past number of months. You know why this is significant. Because last time we left Saul, he wanted an answer from God, and God didn't answer. As a form of judgment, right? You've, you've far, for far too long not listened to me at all. I'm done talking to you. As if God would be saying that to Saul. Here, David goes back to God, and God gives him an immediate answer. This is good. We've got a new David here, I think. We're seeing something different in David now. That's good, because we're getting the end of 1 Samuel, and we've got to know how this thing solves itself. So David set out, and this, this, uh, so David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So somehow David convinces this group to not stone him, but God has told me he will give the Amalekites into our hands, will rescue our sons and daughters, come with me. So they all come with him, all 600 start traveling, they get to a brook, and when you think the brook of Besor, you think that thing behind Grandpa's cabin, you know, just a little trickle, oh, a little brook. No, this was a brook, but there was a deep, huge ravine. No man-made bridges. You have to climb all the way down with all of your equipment, climb all the way up. This was a difficult task. These men, now just think of where they're at, okay? Just three, four days ago, they're 55 miles away. They come home 55 miles. That would have been difficult. Then they see their homes burned and their wives and children gone. Now you've got an emotional toil, emotional difficulty, and now they're on the march to go and rescue, to fight, engage in this military conflict. And they get to this brook, and for a third of them, it's like, I can't go any further. And you might think, because we're macho and we haven't kind of, we're not there, we think, if it was my kids and my wife, I'd, I'd go. Okay, hold on. <laughs> There's also a principle that if you are weak, you would actually do more harm if you try to go and fight. Okay, so you've got to be, you've got to have at least some strength to engage in this incursion. Plus, with a group of 600 people and traveling with all the equipment and gear that they would have, they can't bring all of that into the battle, so we're going to leave the baggage, the luggage, the things that we don't need here. Someone needs to look over that, so there's the solution to the problem. You 200 then, stay here. Look over that. We need to keep that. The rest of you 400, let's go. All right? We come to, well, I'll pause here before we get into verse 11. But notice, I just want you to, to picture yourself being one of these men or picture yourself being David, picture yourself being in this situation. There's great distress. 
remember the big picture of this whole thing. God has to get David from living in the land of the Philistines to being acceptable to Israel and then leading Israel. He's got to get him there. How is he going to do it? Plus, he's got to get David back to look to him as the source of strength, not any other nation or people group. How's God going to do that? He's going to bring him low. He's going to bring David low so that the only place David could look to for strength is God. And when David looks to God, now we can start to see some fruitfulness come about. But I want you to see that pattern because that is a biblical pattern of following God. God does see to it that he will get our attention. You ever been in a time where you stop listening to God's word for a brief period? You stop listening to his people. You stop praying. And then all of a sudden you're brought into a time of deep distress. And the only place you have to go is actually to God. Everybody else you've seen are just plastic saviors. They can't truly strengthen you like you need. So you turn back to God. God will often do that. You know why he does that? Because he's good. When God has a people, he will not let them think that they can be helped by finite saviors. He is the infinite God, the eternal God, the all-powerful God. He, because he loves us, will grab our attention, bring us low so that we look to him and we cry out, Abba, Father. That's what he does. And he's good to do that. Many of you have seen that in your life. I've seen that in my life. He is good to bring us low so that we would look to him for everything. But God's plan for guiding his people doesn't just end there. First part is that we're often brought to a great distress. Second point, then we're brought to great usefulness. And that's the rest of this chapter. We see the usefulness of David. God brings him to great distress, then he brings him to great usefulness. David is going to rescue these people, and the, the text is going to make a point that nothing was lost. They got all their property back. They got all their sons, daughters, wives. They got them all back. Nothing was lost. Plus, we're going to see how God starts to use David in the lives of those people from Israel. We're going to start to see God bring David to a place of usefulness. Verse 11, so they're going on, okay? The 200 are staying by the baggage. The other 400 are going to find the Amalekites and their wives and children. They're going on, and they found an Egyptian, just random Egyptian. They found an Egyptian in the open country. This, I love seeing this in 1 Samuel. There's so many random people that show up at the right time. Evidently, there's some powerful divine being behind all of this. They found an Egyptian in the open country. And and you'll see, this wasn't just any Egyptian. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece uh, of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Now, I read the text earlier. I read through it. And you know that this Egyptian was actually a slave to the Amalekites and he was part of the band that burned down Ziklag. And he's going to lead David and his men to the Amalekites. But what I want you to see here is David and his men don't know that yet. They don't know how useful he is yet. They just feed him and take care of him. They are following the Torah. They are following what Moses told the people of Israel to do when they come across a sojourner. I want to read three passages to you because I think this is important. David was in great distress, distrusting God, trusting in Philistines, but now David strengthens his hand in the Lord, strengthens himself in the Lord, and David starts to become obedient again. This is really interesting. Listen to Exodus 23.9. You shall not oppress a sojourner, You know the heart of a sojourner. You know what it's like to be a sojourner because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 23.7, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Now, Now, if you were an Israelite, you needed God to tell you that because what would your natural tendency to be uh, toward the Egyptians? You would abhor them. 
You kept us captive. You kept my ancestors captive. You made them build buildings and you didn't give them the right material. You enslaved them. How dare you? We hate the Egyptians. So God, the Holy Spirit, writes in the law to the people of Israel, you shall not abhor an Egyptian. You know why? Because you were a sojourner in his land. You benefited from being in his land for a time. And then listen to Leviticus 19. It's not just that you shall not abhor an Egyptian. Okay, fine. I don't abhor Egyptians. No, no, no. You need to do them good. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this isn't just don't abhor the Egyptians. This is love them. Love any sojourner from Egypt or any other place who's with you. You take care of them. You feed them. You love them as yourself, is what Leviticus 19 says. So this band of men going to rescue their wives and children with David come across an Egyptian. And what do they do? They show him kindness. Hasn't eaten for three days, three nights. They give him food. They give him drink. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? You can imagine this guy eating his raisins, you know, drinking his water. To whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to, um, to an Amalekite. And you can imagine a group of David's men watching this guy eat, kind of maybe, you know, brandishing their weapons and kind of getting everything ready. And all of a sudden he says, I'm a servant to the Amalekites. And they all stop. Who do you serve? I'm a servant of the Amalekites. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. So you see the Amalekites leave this man behind. You see the nation of Israel, if you will, and these 600 men. You see the nation of Israel care for this sojourner. That, that's the people of God care for sojourners. The enemies of God leave them behind. Okay? My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah. So this Egyptian servant of the Amalekites is saying, we went after a number of the people in Judah. Okay, David's supposed to be king over the people in Judah one day. He's supposed to care for the people of Judah. So that's a problem. And we burned Ziklag with fire. He didn't know this, but he might as well have just said, and we burned down all of your houses with fire. He didn't know who these men were, but he says, we burned Ziklag with fire as he's eating his raisins. He just told them he burned their houses down. And they know that he would have been the group that took away their wives and kids. And David said to him, this is so good, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by, my, by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this band. I'll take you down there if you don't harm me. Verse 16, and when they had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land. They get to the camp of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are spread about all over the land. They're enjoying the spoil of everything they had taken, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening the next day. So David destroys the Amalekites. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. I don't know why the text says it that way. <laughs> no one escaped except the 400 people that jumped on camels and left. <laughs> I do have a guess, and it's a sanctified guess. We don't hear of the Amalekites for another three to 400 years. David largely put an end to that people right here in these two days. But at the end of First Chronicles, you hear about the Amalekites. There had to be some of them left over to repopulate, probably the 400 men, okay? So there's still some left. So I think that's why that might be phrased that way. But the author of 1 Samuel is trying to get you to see David wipe these people out, okay? David executed justice, the justice from God against the Amalekites. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. 
And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So David, as the leader, got the flocks and herds. Everything else has spoil. Everybody else has spoil. So, so not just did they recover their stuff that the Amalekites took from their city, Ziklag. Now, all of a sudden, the people of Israel have the things that were taken from Judah as well. So remember, the Amalekites didn't just go after Ziklag and take David and his spoil. They also went against the people in Israel, the people of Judah, and took the spoil away. So they're like three cities worth of spoil. And David and the crew defeat the Amalekites, and now they have all the spoil. They have all of it. Verse 21, they come back to meet the 200 men waiting with all the gear. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left behind or left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. So, so David sees the people waiting by the luggage and greets them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David, so some of the 400 that were wicked and worthless, said this, because they didn't go with us, we're not going to give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each one of them may lead away his wife and children and depart. So give them their wives and children, but they don't get any of the stuff that we got because they stayed here and we went and fought. Verse 23, David's a different kind of leader. We've seen David's mercy before. We've seen David's grace before. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. So the Lord has given us the spoil. It's not yours. You're not giving it to yourself. The Lord's giving it to you. That's key. He has preserved us and given, uh, and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So at the time of the writing of 1 Samuel, it was still part of the plan for when their spoil gained, the people who watched after the provision and those who went out and actually got the spoil, both of them will share in the spoil. Everyone's got a role to play. David set that as a statute in Israel. And then verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of, what's that word? Judah. Remember just a few chapters ago, David was going on raids and bringing things back to the king of the Philistines, Achish. Now he gets the spoil and he brings all the spoil to God's people. As you go through the rest of this paragraph, you see all the sites, all the sites, all people of God, all in Judah. God brings all the spoil to the people of Judah, the people that he's going to reign over soon but he brings all of this to them. We know that why that would be significant because David's about to become king. Just next week, spoiler alert, put your hands in your ears if you don't want to hear this, Saul dies, okay? Saul dies. There needs to be a new king. Second Samuel picks up as David is becoming king. There's still some, some trouble there. They try to install a different king for a time. Some of them do. Those in Judah installed David as king Right here, David has gone to Judah and bringing them spoil. Okay, so I wonder why Judah wants David as king. They benefited from him. So this is him getting back in their good graces, if you will. David brings the spoil back to Judah. God is solving this problem of getting David not just away from the Philistines, not just judging the Amalekites because they needed to be judged, but he's also bringing David back to his people that he's going to rule and reign over and cause them to flourish and prosper. God's behind this whole thing. It's amazing to see the intricacy of God's plan here. How he brings David low. As he has him brought to a point where even his closest allies are wanting to kill him. And he looks up to God and God brings him all to the right places. Defeats the Amalekites, rescues his people, gets the spoil, brings it back to Judah. And he's going to reign over them as king and prosper them. Just like God said he would do. God is amazing. He's amazing. And God didn't just work providence out in Old Testament days. God, by his providence, cares for his people, even his people that he brings low. He cares for his people. He guides us. He leads us sometimes through valleys and sometimes through mountaintops. He leads us, but we can trust in this God. 
This God loves his people. He keeps his promises. There's one more feature of this that I think is important to gather. In Deuteronomy 25, which was written before David's time, Deuteronomy 25 says the people of Israel will defeat the Amalekites and the people of Israel will have rest from all of their enemies. Remember Saul defeated the Amalekites but didn't destroy them? David defeats the Amalekites and to his power, we know 400 kind of left on camels, but to the ability that he had, he destroyed all of them. So he is bringing forth, he's bringing forth um, goods, he's bringing forth the, the, the spoil to Judah, saying, I've defeated the enemies, the Amalekites, I'm bringing you back your spoil. And Deuteronomy 25 says they had rest from their enemies. This is a picture of David being one that would be the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 25, although we know he wasn't the perfect fulfillment of all of that, because he'll die. There is one that's coming who will truly give his people rest from their enemies. It's interesting how the Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier this morning lines up with this. We reminded ourselves from the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that God will bring us all not just home to heaven, but he'll also give us a rest from all our enemies. Anybody who's persecuted you, anybody who's tempted you towards sin and they themselves didn't repent of that, all of God's enemies will be wiped out and you'll be led home. Here's a picture of that in David. David is greatly used by God. So he's first greatly distressed, then he's greatly used by God. I want to, in just the last couple minutes, point out a couple of lessons for us to grab. I've hinted at some of these already, but just listen to these. Three, three reasons why this whole plan might have happened. First, David's, David's distress brought an opportunity to trust God again. David's distress brought him an opportunity to trust God again. Okay? Second Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul was brought very low, very low. And there was a point to that. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So there was a messenger from Satan brought to Paul to, to bring him low, to, to try him, to persecute him, whatever it may have been. And Paul was pleading, get rid of this trial. Lord, I can't handle this. Get rid of this trial. He pleaded three times to the Lord. But then he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You see how one of the ways that God strengthens us is to see to it that we can't look anywhere else for comfort. We have to go to him. Lord, I need your grace. I need your guidance. I need your power. And God gives his people strength when they are weak. This is a normal pattern, a normal theme in Scripture. So I would say to you, if you are currently in distress, let's learn from Scripture. How can you trust the Lord again? David was interrupted in chapter 30. He was brought low and made to look up to his God. Maybe you're brought low. I would encourage you, look up to your God. God, I, I need you. Every hour I need you. I need you to guide me. I need you to comfort me. I need you to bring me through this trial in a way that honors you. Teach me, shape me, guide me, mold me, keep me, love me. Go to him like that. Strengthen yourself in the promises of God. That's what David did here. Secondly, David's distress brought an opportunity for obedience. I love the picture of them taking care of the Egyptian. David was not obeying the Lord for a time, not going to Judah, but going to the Philistines for help. He's brought to deep distress and discipline. Now he strengthens himself in the Lord, and what does he start to do? He starts to obey the Lord's word again. He comes across an Egyptian, and he cares for him. That may seem like a small thing, but the Spirit put it in there. David's on a different path now. We've been watching David backslide, if you will, for a little bit. Now he's on a different path. He trusts in the Lord and he starts to be a benefit to people. It's the Christian life. You love God and you love others. 
David starts to do that. David's distress brings an opportunity for obedience again. I remember going through a time of deep difficulty a um, number of years back in college, deep distress, coming to the place where I needed the Lord, cried out to the Lord. And I remember, I think I've told some of you this before, I remember reading, taking my Bible everywhere I went during that time. I was so low, and the only place I had to turn was God's Word. And I, I, would, I was looking for God's Word to, to kind of get me out of the predicament I was in. Okay, what's the verse that will fix all these problems right now? But it started to morph into not just, Lord, fix all my problems, but Lord, what do you want me to do? He brought me to a place where it wasn't just fix my problems, it was how can I serve you? How can I obey you? What does faithfulness look like? And you start to see that with David. He starts to do good to Israel. He does good to an Egyptian. He leads his people. They thrive under his leadership. So it's not just that God brings him out of distress. He also puts him in a place to obey and to be useful. See that lesson here in 1 Samuel 30. Third and finally, another lesson that we don't want to miss. David's distress ends up bringing victory to others. David's distress ends up bringing victory to others. If David would not have been distressed, you could say, humanly speaking, if he wouldn't have been distressed, if his family wouldn't have been taken away, his city burned, if that wouldn't have happened, maybe he wouldn't have cried out to the Lord. Well, he did cry out to the Lord. And because he cried out to the Lord, the Lord gave him victory over the Amalekites. So God knows what he's doing. He brings David low. David cries out to the Lord. Not only is David able to rescue his family, but he also blesses other people, cares for other people. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Many of you know this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Now, what does the God of comfort do? How does the God of all comfort work? What's his way of working? Here it is. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that, the words so that in your Bible are so important. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So do you know one of the reasons that God comforts you as a tested and tried believer, as a suffering believer, you know one of the reasons God comforts you? It's not to end with you. It's so that you can be a means of his comfort to other people. I see this week in and week out in this church. Some of you have been through situations, brought low, and when you come out of that trial, you start looking for people who are in similar, similar situations so that you can be a means of comfort to them because you know what it's like. I, I see that so often in this church. I praise the Lord for that. That is a very Christ-like thing, David-like thing, if you will, to do. God has comforted you for that purpose. It's the old fable of the man being in a hole, can't get out of the hole yells and yells and people throw him information. Try this. Try that. Do this. Do that. None of it works. And then a friend comes to the hole and jumps in. And the guy says, what are you doing? Now we're both in the hole. And he says, I know, but I've been here before and I know the way out. That, that's how we are supposed to come through trials. Lord, you've comforted me. Who can I help? You come to a brother or sister and you say, listen, I, I can't understand part of what you're going through. I've been there before. I want to be a help to you. Not to preach to you right away, <laughs> but, but to be with you. I want to be with you. Paul knew this. David knew this. Christ goes through suffering. Hebrews Four says that he understands and can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so Hebrews 4.16 tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace where we'll find mercy. Mercy from a Christ who's been where we've been in suffering and has come through to the glory. And so we're called to go to Christ. 
Go to him. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be in this world, this world, walk this planet, and be distressed with the things that distress you. He knows what it's like to have relational conflict. He knows what it's like for people to sin against him. He knows what it's like to be tempted like you are. He was different. He overcame that temptation. But the temptation he endured, he knows temptation more than anybody else. He knows what it's like. He knows the consequences of sin. He suffered for them. They were other people's sins, and he suffered for them as if he had committed them himself. He knows what it's like. And when you go to Christ, he does not turn away because you should just be stronger by now. He listens. He listens. I recently heard Ligon Duncan tell the story in referring to Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 5 where Christ is a sympathetic high priest and he listens to his people. He told the story of when he was in college, he would, he would um, pick up performers who would fly in and perform at the university. And so one day he picked up a, famous, a world-famous piano player and this college student, Ligon Duncan, picked him up and, and then brought him back to the airport on the way back to the airport, he had Ligon Duncan had some classical music on the radio, and th- this was a world-class musician sitting in the back seat, and the musician said, can you please turn that off? And Duncan said, uh, he said, sure. And he said, can I ask you why you don't want to listen to that? And he thought it was kind of his thing, you know? And the guy said, uh, he said, I can hear all the imperfections and I can't stand it. And Duncan told a group of us that he was preaching to from Hebrews 4 and 5, he said, your Savior can hear all of the imperfections, and he calls you to go to him because he's listening. He listens. He said, your Lord would never say that to you. He can hear all the imperfections, and he listens. I love the speed at which God answers a distressed David. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He listens to His distressed people. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for reminding us of the fact that You often bring us low for, for reasons. You allow us to be distressed for reasons that bring about a greater glory and a greater comfort and even a greater growth, which we wouldn't have had if we wouldn't have gone through the trial. So, Father, I thank You for Your goodness to Your people. And, Father, if there are those here that do not have a living and reconciled relationship with You, I'm asking that You would show them the goodness of Your Son. David is a pointing to Your perfect Son. David suffered greatly and brought benefit to his people. Your Son suffered greatly on a cross rose again and brings benefit to his people who trust in him. So I pray that today would be a day of salvation, a day of rescue, a day of trust, a day of security, a day where there's a bright hope for the future because of your son. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.